0: Welcome to Music and the Church with Sarah Bariza, a monthly podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, a writer and musician, and today I am joined by Jessica French, who is joining us from Washington State. Hi. thanks. It's great to be here. Jessica is a composer and a vocalist, and we're going to be talking about her music for the church and her work as a church musician today. And Jessica, can you just give us a brief overview of, I mean, your life so far, but you know, like like where, where you are in life as a as a musician?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm mainly a composer. I compose choral music, um, a lot of a acapella and some of it with organ accompaniment. And I'm a singer, so I sing in a lot of choral groups um, around the Seattle area, like I'm a section leader, and I sing with Choral Arts Northwest is one of the groups, and um, and I also teach on the side, so that's mainly what I do.
0: Do you, do you teach voice, composition?
1: Right now, I teach um, just general music at a Catholic school in Seattle, so I teach pre-K to fifth grade students, and then we do have a choir, so I also teach chor- choral music to them.
0: Oh, cool. Cool, that's yeah. great. It's nice to have those like pieces Different pieces of the musical world all coming together.
1: Yeah, it's a nice uh, combination of stuff, (laughs) for sure.
0: Why don't we talk some about your compositions and like where you're coming from as a composer, what you're seeing in the... Musical world that you have. I know you you write a lot of um, really uh, like dense and complicated pieces and pieces with uh, a lot of fantastic uh, soprano pieces. And I'm like, oh, a soprano line! <laughs> it's gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious. Like, t- tell us about some of your music. Yeah. So
1: um, I guess I'm really drawn to choral music because I grew up in a choir school um, in Salt Lake City, a Catholic choir school. Um, and so my whole life I've really been singing. And so I think that's why. I'm so drawn to writing for it.
0: It seems like, like just in what I've listened to with your music, like that makes so much sense because it, the, the melodic lines that you write uh, feel like a vocal line. And I mean, I'm thinking of like the classic, like looking at Bach vocal lines and I'm like, so that's like a violin line for a voice. Um, (laughs) And I love Bach dearly, like that's (laughs) not a total knock on Bach, but you know, like when I look at, when I look at your music, it's like, oh, that's a vocalist writing for vocal lines.
1: Right. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely so helpful to have that singing background as a composer, because I've, I think a lot of us have been there if we're, if we've sung in a group um, where we have a composer who doesn't really know how to write for the voice, who mainly writes instrumental stuff. And they, you know, put tons of words on a high A flat that you're supposed to sing for five measures and <laughs> how uncomfortable <laughs> that can be. Um, and so my hope is that, you know, subconsciously it just by singing for so many years and singing really good music, um, It's helped me to write well for the voice
0: as well. So that's my hope, anyway. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Are there particular things about your music that you want to bring out, draw out?
1: Yeah, um, well, I think the main thing is I have something called synesthesia. So I associate colors with um, notes and letters and words. And so that kind of can dictate what key signatures I use. I have a lot of modal shifts in my music, and that's Mm. because which is kind of interesting. And I, you know, I change keys a lot. <laughs> um, but that's mainly because um, there's different themes that I find within the text that have different colors. And so I want to bring those out
0: um, and play with those. So, I, yeah. I, I, uh, I just have questions about synesthesia. <laughs> Can sure. we, um, yeah. One thing that I'm really curious about is when you're seeing color, are you seeing it in like real-time because when I think about seeing color I think oh I see a painting and I can kind of see all of it at once mm-hmm. but I would imagine if you're thinking about real-time music right you know you wouldn't be seeing all the colors at once
1: yeah that's well wow, I've never got that's a great question I've never had that question before and I think um gosh it kind of reminds me of what do you call them like when you see music playing on your computer and it's like a screensaver that has the colors mm-hmm. that move yeah um, it's kind of like that where it's, yeah, it's not like a, like a Kandinsky painting. I love his paintings, um, where you see it all at once, you know, um, it's more like in real time as the music moves, there is, there's the yellow when I see, when I hear, or there's an orange when I hear E and then, you know, and then it'll shift. Like if it's a major key, it's brighter. If it's minor, it'll darken. So it kind of just, it moves with the music, I guess the best way to describe it.
0: Have you talked with other people with synesthesia and like Are there cultural differences around how people experience it? Do you know? I don't know. I've never thought of that. The only thing I can remember is I
1: I remember talking to a guy that I knew in grad school um, who also had synesthesia, but he, he had a different palette than I do. Most people who synesthetes, as they call them, will have a different set of colors so we kind of argued over, I was like, well, A is green. He's like, no, it's not. It's red. And it's kind of like, you know, it's like, your identity. it's like someone holding up a white crayon and saying it's blue. And you're like, no, it's not, you know? So oh, wow, kinda, it's very interesting. Yeah. So that's the only, that's what I've experienced where you're seeing people have a different viewpoint of what they see, you know?
0: It's, it's interesting to me that you bring up Kandinsky, who's a painter who also had synesthesia. And mm-hmm. my son has a book about him. And in reading it, we read, have read it many, many times. And mm-hmm. um, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, uh, Kandinsky's Paint Box. And in oh. it, it, it strikes me as um, almost an overwhelming experience. Like there's there's one scene where he's at the symphony and it's like, oh, the colors are coming at him. And I'm like, oh, you're already listening to a symphony. Cool. That just feels like uh, like sensory overload there.
1: Right. Yeah, it can be very overwhelming. Um, like I, overall, it's really great to have synesthesia. I think it's a really fun experience. It just, you know, but... Yeah. What I have to do is kind of make decisions Um, because when I get a text, for instance, you know, the words have colors on their own, like just reading a poem has a lot of color, but then you're going to add music to it on top of that. And so it's adding a whole other element of stuff. And so um, a lot of times I like to underline, you know, specific words that are important or if there's a theme kind of going with, you know, different words and then I'll say, okay, well, this is kind of, this word is orange and this is the most important word. So maybe I'll have the soprano sing high E here or, or use, you know, E major. So I try to simplify it for myself. Sometimes I'm not very good at it. It kind of becomes too much and I have to just kind of start over, but that's kind of what I try to do.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's, that's such a, an additional level or layer of, um, just intimacy with the text and intimacy with music like Mm -hmm. a whole nother level of experiencing something that's already beautiful and meaningful but just Mm -hmm. more and more of it
1: yeah and it's really fun and I think sometimes it's very subconscious like when I was taking lessons my teacher once was like why did you change keys so many times (laughs) in like five measures you know and I didn't really realize I was doing it and I kind of would look at the text and be like, "Oh, well, the, because it changed colors here, you know." But it's not something I'm always aware of. It's kind of just ingrained in my perception of things.
0: And if you're experiencing it in that real time kind of way, it's like, "Well, this is the flow of the music, and this is how the music,
1: yeah, goes exactly." Yeah. It's just what you see, and it's like your reality. So oh, that is
0: that's fascinating and yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to me, like when i was young I remember people you know i thought everyone had synesthesia because it's kind of like it's so real to you but then you 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 know you realize later you're like oh wait not everybody sees um blue when they hear a bee
0: so <laughs> kind of yeah. it's kind of like i've been uh reading lately some articles about internal monologues and oh. how some people have them and some people don't and I had always thought I had an internal monologue. And then when I started, because, you know, I'd hear, hear like descriptions of like, you know, children internalizing their monologue. And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I can think in my head, I, I get this. Yeah. And then I read like more detailed descriptions of what an internal monologue is. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I don't have that.
1: <laughs> right, isn't that funny? Yeah, you're like, oh, that's not at all what I experience." Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Right. I was like, I thought it was pretty normal. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Why don't we talk some uh, about singing? And I'm curious about a couple things. One, just about your experience as a singer, and especially as 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 a section leader. I feel like I think you're actually the first section leader that we've had on the podcast. And a lot of times, you know, I'm talking with organists, I'm talking with choir directors, people who are like in that capacity in a church service. And section leaders are also so important. But I've never really talked with someone about that particular role oh cool
1: yeah yeah i've been a section leader for quite a while in various churches um i've been at saint james cathedral here for about four or five years now which is the catholic cathedral in seattle um but yeah i think finding that balance where you don't want to take over the section and feel like you're singing a solo and just kind of overpowering your singers because a lot of times at least from my experience now the choir that I, choirs that I sing with, it's a lot of um, volunteer and amateur singers, and then you've got like one section leader, per, mm-hmm. per yeah, section. And um, I think what what I want to try to be careful of is not to sing so loud that all you hear is a section, <laughs> section leader. Um, just to kind of learn how to blend with the singers and help them feel like everyone's doing their own part, you know, chorally and listening to each other, but still leading and helping helping
0: them. So, so yeah, finding that balance is important. How do you feel about leading folks in the section? And I, I work with a number of section leaders in, mm-hmm. in the choir that I direct. And it's always mm-hmm. interesting to me to see like how they have different modes of leadership in the choir. And, and some of that I think is also about how long they've been in the choir. Some of them have known the volunteers in the choir for, you know, 15 years or what have you. And so right. they have a different dynamic than the person who's just joined. But it's an interesting thing to see like how, how some folks are more comfortable in leadership than others.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's important. Um, I mean, I've, I've, you know, in in my experience, various places, I've seen some people who are section leaders who might be a little bossy and, you know, maybe pointing to someone's score next to them, saying, "You need to fix that note," or kind of, you know, making the, the other singer feel like they're doing it all wrong. So I think it's important to, you know, maybe like what I try to do is I'll say, you know, I think we need to work on. We're having, you know, trouble finding this note or this section, but kind of making it just a general thing, not like making any of the singers next to you feel like you're pointing them out specifically. Um, But, you know, talking about it as a whole section, like can we work on this measure here? You know,
0: that's a a nice nice way of putting it. It's a tricky thing. I feel like as a choir director, it's an interesting thing to balance where, you know, they, you know, you need to sing an A natural, not an A flat or whatever it is. But at the same time, like criticism of the voice is so much a criticism of body. And, yeah. And that's, you know, that's really hard and people are so vulnerable already, especially for all the non-professionals in the choir. Like this is the wow. fun thing they do after work and they're tired and actually they really just want to drink and <laughs> you don't know, to come to choir. And so like on one hand you know you want to work hard and do your best and mm-hmm. you know th- that kind of element but also like you know you don't want someone to be mean to you <laughs> just
1: right. You know. Yeah, exactly. And you know I've experienced both section leaders and choir directors some who you know, expect that it has to be perfect and without really looking at, you know, what is in who is in front of them, you know, what types of singers and varying levels you have. And I think it's important to know what you can expect, you know, without trying to push them to be to a level that just probably won't happen and will make people very unhappy and and nervous. And I think when people get nervous, they're not going to sing well, you know, and it's, it's going to go even worse than what you expected in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, helping yeah. them feel respected while you are, you know, helping them to sing better and work on the notes. Yeah. And, and
0: I, like empowered, empowered to, to be their very best and not, yeah. um, you know, I'm thinking of my, my son on the playground where, you know, sometimes he'll be frustrated because he can't do, you know, some piece on the, of equipment that's too big for him. And I don't, I don't usually help him with that. I'm like, you know, well, if you can't do it, then that's it's too big for you. You're not ready for it yet. Um, right. So on one hand, like it's incredibly empowering because he's so able to do what he wants to do. And then on the other hand, it's just like, well, you know, we don't we don't have to do the stuff that is too hard. That's in, like literally impossible, mm-hmm. like for him physically. Right. But also for the choir, to say, well, we don't have to do the stuff that's impossible for our choir. We can do the stuff that we can do really well.
1: Absolutely, because then it goes well for everybody. You know that mm-hmm. you know it's less stress and people can enjoy it because it's actually going well and you don't have to work mm-hmm. as hard to do something mm-hmm. really well. Yeah, if it comes more easily to everybody,
0: or you can you can even trust that the hard work that you're doing is going to pay off, and not the hard work, and you're just like, eh, that wasn't so great. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot worse. <laughs> I had some uh yeah. some uh Arvo Parrot music planned for later in this program year, and we're J- Jessica and I are recording this in in the time of COVID. Who knows if we're going to be doing Arvo Pärt right. in May? <laughs> I kind of doubt it at this point. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll see right. when we get there. Um, but. But I, I'm I'm looking at it and it's one of those like I think we can do it, but mm-hmm. I'm not actually sure. And it might not actually Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know it's, it's like I think this is a, a reasonable stretch, but you know, and sometimes mm-hmm. you know in that selection process, you're like, I think I'm not quite sure, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I mean. I have my children's choir at St. George. It's a, you know, we only meet we're only able to meet once a week and we have Friday morning masses, and you know, I'll I'll look at something that I might want to do. I'm like, I don't know, will we pull this off? We'll try it. But then if it's you know
0: mm-hmm. Not it's going it's data for the next time around. It's data. Exactly. Exactly. Totally. Exactly. So, yeah. Yes, it's it's nice to know those those kinds of things. Yeah, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. So, one thing that's really interesting in your history is that you used to be pretty active as an organist. And of course, for me as an organist, that's always interesting because I feel like organists are we have such an in on the compositional world because we can read three staves really competently and hold yeah. so much um, so much horizontal information about a score all at mm-hmm. once. Like, whereas a flutist is like, well, <laughs> you know, it, it's, not, not that you can't, of course, but it's just yeah. so much, there's so much more ingrained in us in, the, in our ability to just think in that vertical kind of way, in that polyphonic kind of way. Um, oh, and so yeah. I'm curious like how that, th- that story for you and how that's influenced the work that you do now as a composer,
1: yeah. So um, I was an organist for a long time. I have two degrees. I got my ma- my bachelor's and master's, uh, Indiana University and then Yale University as, as an organ in organ performance specifically. Um, so I was planning to be, you know, uh, I wanted to be like at a cathedral or a big have a big church job, you know, and maybe do recitals and perform. But um, I started getting a lot of pain issues, and I wasn't sure what was going on. It was mainly when I was in grad school, and then I finally figured out I had this thing called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And it's a very strange, um, term kind of rare. It's a connective tissue disorder, but basically it's a lack of collagen. And so you can't really hold yourself together very well. It's <laughs> Like, like it's the glue that holds your body together basically. So your mm. joints, um, yeah, it's very hard on your joints. And so any prolonged activity like sitting at the organ or at a computer or things yeah. like that can be very hard on your body. And, um, At the time, I was like 19, 20. I was like, what is going on? You know, you're so young and you're having pain issues in your neck and all that, back, wrists, and anyway, and it's hard to get a diagnosis because it's very rare. Um, So I kept pushing through it. You know, you have your degree recitals. You have to get everything ready. Yeah. And I I worked so hard to get to that point. You know, I mean, that that was like my goal. I was going to be an organist. And um, so I had to, you know, and then I had a couple church jobs. I I moved to New York after Mm -hmm. I finished grad school. Um, but then it just it, got, it just got to be too much, and I had to kind of rework what I was going to do. Um, and so I moved here to Seattle because um, my parents moved here. Um, I'm originally from Utah, so I had never lived in Seattle before. I was like, I'm just moving mm. here for and see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> I really yeah, didn't have a plan. And I basically, you know, I wanted to keep singing because singing is my whole life. I've been singing since I was 10 years old and singing choral music. And so, but I knew I couldn't really make a living as a choral singer. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah. Some people can do that, but it's very rare. Um, so I started composing just, just little bits here and there, just kind of writing little choral anthems. And I've always wanted, I always wanted to compose. I, I remember when I take church music classes at IU, we, you know, write little hymns arrangements and things like that mm-hmm. and I always enjoyed that but I never really had the time to you know to compose or take a composition class yeah. or anything yeah. and so I um a friend of mine got me in touch with someone who teaches he's a pretty well known composer here in the area and very well known and then he also teaches and so I was able to start taking lessons um and it just kind of you know snowballed from there I think being a choral singer has helped tremendously because I found out that Seattle's a very um, um lively has a very lively choral uh world here there's a lot of choral groups and um and so I started singing in a few of them and a lot of them actually you know commission composers to write and so um yeah and so it was kind of because I was like oh you know and and I was lucky to get my first commission just a few years after writing uh, just starting to compose and so it just Mm -hmm. kind of snowballed from there and it's been a really great place to be for that kind of thing so oh that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it's, you know, when I, I guess, st- stopped playing the organ, it was very difficult at the time, because I was like, I mean, I didn't expect I'd have to do that. And I worry yeah. what people thought. Like, why does she just stop? You know, I think there was kind of a, a worry that people didn't really understand what mm-hmm. why I was doing that. Um, so this has kind of filled that void and kind of given me that connection that I feel like I lost when I stopped playing, because I can at least write for the organ, just, you know, it's just using the organ in a different way, I guess, you know, so...
0: You know, this is making me wonder about healthy practices for composition, uh, given that I'm sure you're not like sitting hunched over a little keyboard, you know, with your, with your laptop. (laughs) I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you, how do you do that?
1: Yeah, I think it's been great. Composing has been a lot more manageable for me in that regard versus playing because it's kind of a mixture of things. I mainly use Finale on my, on my uh, computer, um, but it's more just, you know, entering notes on the, on the keyboard. And it's not like this constant thing that you're constantly hitting the keyboard all the time. And then I'll sometimes go to my, my musical keyboard, you know, um, and you know, play through progressions that I want. And, and then sometimes I'm writing things down, you know, and so it's kind of this, and then sometimes I'm singing into my, <laughs> my iPhone, the voice notes app, which is my favorite app, because if I get an idea, I can sing into it. So I don't forget it. So it's. For me, composition is, and then I can stop for a bit, you know, but it's, what I love about composing is once you've written something, it's there forever. And it's not unlike the organ where, which is great, you know, but like if I, you know, I, I wrote, or I, I um, learned a Vidor symphony, um, I don't have to keep practicing it to keep it alive, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, and, and which is, is a great process, but could also be stressful if I had a full-time church job and I had all these other things that I had to be managing, um, I wouldn't have to worry about making sure that it's still going to sound as good as it sounded two years ago when I played it in my recital. So what I love about composing is I can, you know, work on them wherever I am and then stop and then come back. And, and it just it helps me that way. So
0: and I bet, I bet you can do it more in, in pieces, like in spurts. Exactly. Because, you know, when I first
1: start a piece, I look at the text and I just I want to get that text in my head. I'll usually memorize it and you know, read it to myself. And that's you know, there's no keyboard work with that at all. So I'll do that, then I enter notes, and then at the end, it's the editing process, which is you know, I print the music out, and I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm taking my red pen and crossing things out. So yeah, it's like it's a mixture of of different movements of things, and that makes it much more manageable for me.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. and, and that's a lovely way of thinking about that process and and being a musician. Uh, you know, I, I feel like we experience yeah. music and um, creating music in such there's such a range of ways that we can communicate can create music a range right. of ways yeah. that we can create music and that's like a wonderful like oh and here's another way that you can create yeah. music yeah yeah and be a and musician. Think,
1: right and it's been really ex- um kind of exciting for me because i when i stopped playing i kind of felt like everything stopped and there was no hope you know but this has opened up you know doors for me to be like oh i can still express myself musically just in a different way and there's different you know methods of doing that. And it's the variety actually makes it
0: interesting too. Mm -hmm. I never feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. (laughs) Jessica, thank you so much for this conversation. And I'm wondering if you can tell listeners where they can find you online and where they can find your music online.
1: Sure. Um, So my website is jessicafrench.net. You can find me there. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram.
0: So you can just look me up there. Awesome. Thank you. You can find the show notes for Music in the Church at musicinthechurch.com, where you can also find lots of resources for church staff and musicians. If you'd like to get in touch, send me an email at musicinthechurch at gmail.com. I'll be back next month with another episode of Music in the Church with Sarah Barriza.